Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Patient and Public Involvement, or PPI, in research is a philosophy whereby research is carried out with or by people affected by a condition, rather than about, for or to people. Over the past 20 years, an increasing value has been placed on including the lived experience of patients and the public in research, covering the full spectrum of basic science through to health services. Our panellists today all work for or are funded by Alzheimer's Society. Alzheimer's Society has pioneered the active involvement of people affected by dementia through their award-winning research network since 1999. More recently, over the last year, Alzheimer's Society has been considering the evidence surrounding how it involves people affected by dementia in research and moving the conversation about PPI forward from proving why it should be done to really improving how it can be done in partnership with researchers. I would like to welcome our three panellists List today. Anna Smith, a research engagement manager at Alzheimer's Society, has worked in the field of patient and public involvement for the last six years. Kirsten Moore, a senior research fellow at UCL in the Marie Curie Palliative Care Research Department. Kirsten's current fellowship is concerned with the grief that carers often experience whilst caring for someone with dementia. And Jane Ward, an Alzheimer's Society Research Network Local Area Coordinator for South East England with a degree in physics from Liverpool University. Jane cared for her mother, Ella, who was diagnosed with vascular dementia in 2009. Welcome to you all. Shall we start with a fairly simple but important distinction? Uh, what is the difference between involvement and participation? Anna? Hi, yes. Um, well, you said it in your intro, basically. So participation is where... The um, people involved are the subject of the research, so they're providing the data for the research. It's being done wi- uh, to them or um, uh, on them in a way, whereas involvement is working in partnership with people who are uh, affected either as um, a person who has the condition or a carer of somebody uh, who has the condition. Okay, so when you are having research done to you and you are participating, you, I guess, don't really have any say in the research and at the end you don't know any of the results. If you're involved in it from an earlier stage, you have a lot more say in the research. Do you also get to see the outcomes of the research and feel more part of it that way? Ideally, yes. Yes, that is good, (laughs) patient and public involvement. Um, So it can start right from coming up with the question through to designing the research, um, addressing the protocols, uh, uh, talking about the outcomes of the research. So, yes, all the way through, there are ways that people can be involved. Okay, great. Um, Kirsten, as I mentioned in the introduction, your research question focuses on the grief that carers often experience whilst caring for someone with dementia. Could you tell us a bit more about your project and also how PPI helped inform and maybe even guide your research? Yes, hello. Um, My study looks at the grief, as you mentioned, that carers often experience before um, the death of a relative with, with dementia. And this is a really sensitive topic, so it can be quite difficult to sort of engage people and and talk about this topic. So my study was actually based initially on a a sort of quite a history of doing research and interviewing as participants rather than as PPI participants about um, their experiences caring for someone with dementia. And through that I sort of became aware of of 
grief being an issue that wasn't being addressed a lot in research. So this is what sort of initially sparked the idea. Um, but coming early on before I sort of applied for my Alzheimer's fellowship, I was able to contact the Alzheimer's network, research network, and um, organise a focus group so I could talk to a group of carers and present my research idea and see is this something that resonates with you? Is this something that you feel is important and, and will have a have an important outcome for you? So they were able to sort of really review and sort of give me some input. Um, I think one of the things that came up that sort of I had to adjust a little bit in my study was the impact of social support. Um, a lot of the research hadn't shown really that social support was, was an important factor, but um, I, I'd sort of felt like it probably should be included, but the, 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 the focus group I had sort of really confirmed that that really needed to be included, so that was included. And then after um, successfully getting the funding, I was able to start the project, and I've now got an experts by experience um, group that I meet with um, from time to time, and we review the the study, how it's going. Um, one of the important things I think is is actually sort of trialling the the research protocol with with some carers. So some of the members of my experts by experience group who are currently caring for someone with dementia actually sat down with me and we we went through it as if they were a participant so they could sort of see is this suitable is it ethically ethical to do this interview am I covering topics that are just too too um, sensitive or how can I make that sort of an acceptable process. So that was quite a good process in, in terms of how you word your participant information sheet and things like that to make sure it's accessible to people. Um, and also in terms of implementation and, and, and outcomes and, and how we can disseminate the findings and, and where, how people might be able to access this better is also a key part of it, I think. So that's after the research is finished, in a way, dissemination to other people who could benefit from the research? Is that what you mean? Yeah, so you know, in, te in you know, as researchers, we tend to have fairly academic sort of ways of disseminating our research through journal articles and conference proceedings. Um, but we need to think about, and we do, you know, we look at sort of how can we engage with charities, how can Alzheimer's Society sort of implement this. I'm also working with Admiral nurses because they're a key part of this in terms of support for carers. Also, other services, memory services, care homes, you know, how can we get this information out there? And also also family carers. So they can give us advice on where they, you know, where they sort of seek and obtain information so that we can tailor that, that message to them. I think as researchers, it's also a responsibility that we do provide feedback back to our participants, mm -hmm. um, regardless as to whether they're PPI members or participants, that, that that's something as all researchers we should be, should be doing. Yeah, and for your fellowship that you got from the Alzheimer's Society, was it actually a requirement that you sought PPI or did you do that? To inform your own work or did, were you, was it a requirement? It's not a requirement, but it very much is becoming, and it's not just Alzheimer's. I think all funding bodies now have it as an expectation that you will do this. So, And I guess that's where sometimes some of the limitations of it can arise because if you've sort of been told that you have to do it, mm -hmm. then it become, can become tokenistic. So I think in terms of doing it before you submit your application, the Alzheimer's approach is, you know, it's it's recommended and it's it's good to do. Um, it's, it's not a requirement, but I think it does, I think it, certainly will make your application more likely to be um, acceptable. Um, but also it's it's quite a major commitment that the Alzheimer's Society has in terms of PPI 
group reviewing all of the grant applications. So you know that, that carers and, and people with dementia will be re reviewing your grant, so you need to make sure that it does apply to them. So it is a, it's integral to the whole process that, that there's that engagement throughout. Yeah, it certainly and does come up in the, um, in the, in the review process, yeah. absolutely. Every single um, grant application is reviewed by LA members, so um, it more yeah. and more, doesn't it, Jane? Yes. It comes up yeah. that if, it's, if PPI isn't there, then, then that is a concern to the people who, um, who we're re representing through the society, yeah. yeah. And Jane, you have worked as a volunteer. How have you found working with researchers in general? Oh, it's amazing. It's such a, an incredible experience. Um, obviously, you mentioned I, I was a carer. Um, that's how I got into the dementia field. And it's, it's such a difficult condition to deal with. You feel completely out of control. Um, things happen and, and you just don't know what's going on. And one way of getting control back is to actually get involved in the research so that you have your voice about what should be researched and the Alzheimer's Society is great about that. So we actually do you know, look at priorities quite often. And so it is what the, you know, the people affected by dementia think should be looked at. Um, on an individual project, I... I I was on part of the focus group with Kirsten a few mm. years ago. So, you know, we actually were involved in, in her forming her research, um, now working with her on the project. And it's, it's just great because you know that you can help out, you can give some ideas, we can um, really make sure that what's being done is appropriate, both in it's what needs to be looked at, but also from the individual point of view of people who are maybe interviewed, that the language that's used, the way the interviews go, are the best we can make them for those people that are coming along behind us, um, experiencing the condition. And so you feel like you're putting something back. Mm. Um, most of us are doing it on memory of our loved ones um, because we did feel so helpless when it was happening. But now we can do something that actually, you know, we're making a difference. Yeah. And hopefully one day, you know, We'll, we'll stop this happening to people. Yeah. So it's really, you found a massive benefit from being involved in the research, not just taking part in the research, but actually oh, yeah. feeling like you were, you know, cre not creating, but um, developing the research along with researchers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you felt the same reciprocal benefit to your research, yeah. Kirsten. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. It's, it's amazing. Um, did you and your mother take part in... Did you actually participate in research? Not when Mum was alive. Um, I was a member of the research network and, and, and I was mentioning the reviews, so I, I did review. Mm -hmm. And that was probably three or four years before we lost Mum. Um, and I wished I had. At the time, um, wasn't a lot that I knew of that was going down in Hampshire. And mum wasn't very good. She never was very good at travelling. Um, she didn't like to go on holiday. So going too far afield um, wasn't great. We did go to, I think, one of the Alzheimer's Society conferences. And we went to one a conference up at Nottingham, um, really so I could learn a bit more about how to look after her well. Um, but we were engaged with Hampshire County Council on a few things where she was actually able to, to um, give her views about how old, older people like to live. And... Um, she thoroughly enjoyed it. And the great thing for her was that she did feel so often that she was a little bit stupid, a bit of a waste of 
of my time and other people's time. And she just didn't understand what was going on in her life occasionally. But when she could go to one of those meetings and people listened to her and she felt she was making a difference, because she'd always been someone that wrote to her MP or... Um, Prince Charles was one of her favourites about the environment. I've got quite a few letters from him. Um, but she was actually still doing something. She was making a difference. And we'd come home from a meeting and she'd say to me, I'm not sure what that was all about, but did I do something useful? And I could say yes. And it'd make her feel happy. Yeah. And that stayed with her. Mm. So, you know, it was that thing of, of actually still being worth worthwhile. I guess it comes back to the thing that we said at the beginning, and Anna, you also reinforced, is that it's not having stuff done to you. You are yeah. doing stuff yourself. You yeah. are in it. Yeah, so many carers and people with dementia feel like they're having everything done to them and for them. Mm. And I think none of us want that. I mean, it, it's generally for older people. I think, you know, they don't like, and I'm getting there, so you, we don't like to the thought that we're going to be put on a shelf and everyone's going to look after us. Mm. We're still valuable. Mm. You know, you look at Japan and they still have older people doing a lot of things. Um, themselves and, and their experience is very well um, recognised. And, you know, someone with dementia, if they're helped through it, can still actually give an awful lot back. And I work with the likes of Wendy Mitchell and Keith Oliver, who are quite famous. Mm. Um, I sit on a panel with Keith. Keith, And, uh, in fact, he's chaired meetings, and I think he may well be chairing um, something we're doing at Dementia Congress in a couple of weeks. You know, he's still able to because of his background, but, you know, why wouldn't he? And I think Hilary Doxford's working mm -hmm. with Anna at yeah. the same Congress, mm -hmm. who's another of our champions and our ambassadors. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone can do it, but if they can, let's, let, let's make sure they do. Mm -hmm. And the ones that maybe can't stand up and talk in front of a, you know, a crowded room probably can still have a view about something that, you know, a researcher's looking at. And, and let's, let's encourage them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I come from a basic biology background perhaps you could expand a bit more on the value of PPI on biomedical research Anna? Yeah that's a really good question and it's something that um, we really need to address when we're looking at improving um, patient public involvement throughout research. It's tricky um, it it can be a bit um, there can be lab based researchers who just don't see where that where that um, benefit is. But when you're talking about dissemination and communication, and especially in uh, current times, how important it is that you're able to communicate your research, especially if you're going to get more funding or down the line or you're trying to translate your results, who best to help you put that into plain English than someone who has a vested interest in the research being successful or at least having an outcome that's worth talking about. I imagine you go home to your partner, they're probably not that interested in talking the high science, you know what I mean? So you, you, you can be in a little echo chamber with your fellow researchers and you speak a certain kind of language and that's fantastic, but there are other people who are so fascinated by what you're doing and they can help you to then broadcast that to the wider community. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's a, a big function of patient public involvement in that setting, working alongside people who are affected um, to bring that into the language that everyone can understand. Mm. Oh, also, Jane and I were having a chat beforehand and she came up with an example that I hadn't even thought of. Do you want to sort of explain in a nutshell what we're talking about, how yeah. the 
experience of someone affected can have yeah. an impact on, yeah. It was one of the um, projects I was monitoring and um, one of my fellow monitors actually brought his wife who was living with dementia along to the monitoring. Um, and we did have that discussion about whether she should because she wasn't a monitor, but I think we all felt straight away, yeah, you know, why wouldn't she come? And we had the tour of the lab and, and she joined in with the meeting. Um, and we were talking about some behaviours that um, were exhibited while, while she was um, visiting. And it actually helped the researcher to think about the similarities between her behaviour and actually what he was seeing in the mouse models. And it's just quite interesting that actually we then had a discussion, so it opened up something that he hadn't really thought about. Yeah. I and think you can become a bit closed off in the lab and yeah. you forget, although obviously you know because you write it in so many grant applications and you tell people all around the world that you work yeah. on Alzheimer's, you forget that it's people that you yeah. should eventually be And when helping. you're actually meeting the people who are living mm. with it and you get to know them as individuals, suddenly it becomes, I'm sure, so much more real mm, yeah. because actually I'm doing this for that person yeah and I'm doing it because I know these people and I understand these people mm. so yeah and I think there's sort of very different types of research and there's you know it's not so it's not just research and not research you know it's there's such different levels of engagement mm. in terms of how research is undertaken and I guess you know just doing something very biological with cells is very different to um, perhaps sort of more action research approaches where you're engaging with a community and you're sort of working much more collaboratively and um, we have co-production and things now mm. which is a totally different philosophy so I think it also depends what sort of discipline you're coming at it from in terms of how much is naturally sort of engagement and involvement of people um, mm. in your research anyway. So I think that's important that it's it's not just black and white, that you've either got PPI or not sort of thing. And um, I, mean, I think also researchers may not have good experience, but, but there's also, also lots of researchers who are do have relatives with dementia and, and do have personal experience. So, you know, there's sort of these this grey areas as well, I guess, that we need to sort of keep in mind. Yeah. I think the other thing you've got to remember is that every, every single person, it's always said, who's living with dementia is different. Mm. Once you've met one person, you've met one person. So I myself, you know, through fellow monitors, learn so much more about, you know, the condition just because mm. someone else will have some completely different experience than, than my experiences. Yeah. And that, I think that's always very valuable. Mm. Same with carers too. And ca well, yes, carers. <laughs> we're, carers we're, too. we're all different, yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> and researchers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, a more practical question, Anna. You've worked in the PPI field for over six years. How can a researcher find people affected by dementia to support or partner with on their research? Well, as a representative of Alzheimer's Society and uh, uh, research engagement manager, I work with the research network. So they are 270 people, all um, either affected personally by uh, dementia or, like Jane, have cared for or are caring for people affected by. So um, to anyone listening who is interested in um, contacting us to uh, develop their patient public involvement, find out how they can implement that, uh, they can contact us at researchnetwork at alzheimers.org.uk, and I guess we could put that on your website. Yeah, the, yes. the link will be at the bottom. Yeah. yeah, so fundamentally, I would say, come to us. Okay, great. <laughs> um, how did you go about finding 
people for your PPI, Kirsten? Yeah, that was pretty much okay. much it. Um, there's and you know there's different charities and different mm. bodies mm. that have different groups because I'm I'm also within a Marie Curie Palliative Care Research Department, so we're linked with Marie Curie, who also has sort of expert voices, and um, so there's there are sort of various different groups where where these groups are already set up that are already accessing people that um mm. but also sometimes it just comes out of out of research participants that sometimes you just meet someone who's really engaged and wants to be really involved and and so you sort of um have, have a bit of a spark there and sort of think well you know would you what would you like to be involved in the next step or in, a, in another research study and and that can evolve that way as well Okay, so we opened up the discussion on Twitter and we got a few questions back to us. Anna Volkmer asked, any advice on how to include people with cognitive and communication disorders who are frequently excluded from this type of activity? Uh, maybe Anna, you could answer this? Um, so yes, this this can be a challenge and um, I guess you can break it into two things. How to include people being if you're trying to find those people, um, again, coming through the research network, but, it, but that is an area where uh, improvement is having to be made. So we are working on our recruitment of volunteers to make sure that we're developing roles for people uh, who can have a voice. So like Jane said... Yes, we do have some amazing people who are living well with dementia and are able to contribute on that level, but we want people who are perhaps not as um, mobile or confident to be able to to uh, contribute as well. So we're working on that. But in the meantime, yes, we do have a number of the, the network who are personally affected. The second part of that question is how to include them, you, you need to be thinking about the practicalities of that. So if you are wanting somebody to physically come in and meet with you, then you really need to be thinking about working that into your budget. So say somebody affected by dementia needs to get a train and then needs to navigate their way to a university and then around that university, I would really recommend thinking about, you know, obviously covering tra um, travel costs but arrange a taxi perhaps from the, the the station to the university make sure there's a really clear map um, that you send to them ahead of time uh, perhaps buddy them up with someone who can meet them at a key place to get them to and fro um, make sure you incorporate breaks into your um, your time with them uh, refreshments definitely make sure that whatever room you're in you're not ages away from a, a toilet <laughs> just thinking really not too hard. I mean, it's it's, it's yeah. a basic, fundamental, you know, uh, human way of, of looking yeah. at things. But but working in those sort of practicalities. Jane, can you think of some more? Um, that I have one of the panels we do. Um, we've got a couple of people living with dementia on the panel, and yes, they have have someone that meets them. Um, we always try and get into the same room so it's familiar. Mm. And um, they're sometimes sent some of the materials early on so they can look at them, but. Big thing to remember is if you're doing a presentation, to make it fairly clear. Um, think about the presentation that it's not, you know, think things aren't too sort of um, chaotic on on the screen. Um, particularly handouts. A big one is um, we want to save paper, so we tend to do double-sided handouts, which is fine if it's um, portrait, but if it's landscape, I think we've all had a meeting where we sat and you're you're flipping the landscape papers over, trying to work out, you know, the top and the bottom. Yeah. And for most of that, as that can be a bit annoying, if you're living with dementia, that can... I've seen people actually just put the sheet down because they can't work it out. So having it single-sided 
so that it's very clear how you navigate through the, the materials. And just thinking about the materials, you know, very plain language, you know, not too small, not too busy. Um, we have um, rules, so rules of conduct. I, I'm trying to think of something that sounds... Rules of engagement, <laughs> something that sounds less officious. But generally the rules um, are that if the person living with dementia is starting to speak, we're all usually pretty good at not talking over each other. But if you've got a really good idea, you might want to jump in um, quite quickly when someone's finished talking. Um, if you've got someone living with dementia, just learning to be very sort of patient and very quiet and very still, let them finish and then not jump straight in because they might not have finished. Mm. might sound like it, but they've, they've thought of something else. Um, and being aware, very aware of them, we usually... Um, I know the particular group I'm thinking about, we're very aware of, of our members who have dementia, so we, you know, if we see them starting to sit forward with obviously something they want to say, then we, we will all quieten down. Mm. Um, it sounds but just, like rules for, actually, do you talk to other carers about this sort of thing? Because, like you said at the beginning, finding yourself suddenly being a carer of someone with dementia, you weren't given a rule book, you felt isolated, no. you didn't know what you were doing, but you now have this wealth of experience. Do you take it out and disseminate this to other carers? Because this sounds like valuable um, insight. In other work I do, I tend to, mm. um, and I am actually just currently back where I live, um, looking at doing some work with carers about, you know, just the basics of how to, how to kind of cope with being a carer. Mm. Um, but I think definitely for this, um, Innovations in Adventure, um, based in Exeter, it's a CIC. Um, they do an awful lot of work, and again, we can make sure you've got their, mm. their website. Yeah. Um, they host a couple of groups, I know, and they, they also hope they host the, the DEEP groups, which is the Dementia Engagement and Empowerment groups. Um, and I've, I've used their rules of thumb, and I'm in contact with them whenever we set any, any focus groups up. Mm. Um, but I suppose a lot of it is just what you'd like to do for any of us. Yeah. But I think in the question you, you mentioned about dementia, but it, it's for people who've got language difficulties, hard of hearing maybe. I mean, the other one I know with public um, sort of public meetings, we're always aware of people that might not be able to read the materials we're providing. Mm. So, you know, having other things potentially available if they need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess it sort of comes back to what you said, Anna, just being human about it and humane and yeah. thinking about your audience in sure. a compassionate way. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is something that um, you, you may not immediately know. You may not have had contact with anyone affected by dementia before. I mean, I've, I've met researchers who are, have been working in the field for quite some time, and, and that is a, a moving um, first meeting for them. So it's lovely, um, but they may not have those practical um, skills or, or knowledge already there so um, that's why it is a nice idea to come through the research network so we can talk through that as well and that's that's part of um, making sure that your patient public involvement is is good as mm. opposed to being tokenistic yeah. you know <laughs> going that extra little step to um, to make it valuable not just for the people that you're involving but for yourself as mm. well yeah. but I, think, I think there is sort of a limitation in, I work mm. in end of life care and dementia with 
and we're looking at people with advanced dementia and have very limited communication. They may not speak at all. And I think we all as a society have difficulty understanding what their needs are and how do we, how do we reach them. So engaging them in research is, is, is very difficult at, at sort of a lot of levels and, and trying to, to meet their needs. I think that's an area where we're, we're really um, still struggling and grappling with, I guess. Yeah. But um, I think in terms of people at milder, earlier stages of dementia, we've certainly improved yeah. our engagement and involvement. In, in the research process. Um, mo- moving on to Mariam Piano asks, how do you balance the different things your volunteers with dementia could give input on against the time and cognitive burden of being involved in all these different aspects of the study? I'm thinking I'll hand over to Jane, but I think that comes down to personal choice, really. Yeah. I think it's flexibility. Yeah. Um, understanding that people can give you a real benefit but making sure that you... I mean, in dementia, we're always talking about person-centred. Mm. Everything's got to be person-centred. It's just bringing that into the research. So some people will be able to give more. Mm. Other people won't be able to give as much. Um, and I think that's a big thing that the the network are always involved in, is just giving that input about things where maybe... Just thinking a little bit longer about how you involve people. I can think of something um, a few years ago as I was involved in a focus group and we were talking about a whole bank of, of scans and EEGs and MEGs and all, all of this sort of thing being done to, to people over a couple of days. And, you know, they're asking about, you know, the, the best time for these things to be done and just how you'd, you'd set up the, the, um, the itinerary during the couple of days. And I think we basically said you've got to look at who's going to volunteer to do it. Because if, if you're having sticky things stuck to your scalp, um, a gentleman who maybe is a little bit older and doesn't have much hair, it's not going to matter too much. If you've got a lady who's got a particular hairstyle and very conscious of how she looks, that is going to matter. So employing a hairdresser to pop in and, and you know just sort her hair out or doing it at the end of the day so that she goes back to the hotel and has a chance to do it herself is going to make a big difference. And um, you know talking to the carer about that person's daily routine so that you can work out, you know, how you maybe can balance their needs during that day. Mm-hmm. The same way, we, quite often we're talking about, you know, with meetings, um, what time of day would be better. So, you know, if you're going to do a focus group, probably not too early because you've got to get there, not too late because people get tired. Mm-hmm. But also think about the transport, how busy it's going to be, how much travelling they've got to do. Do you have a break? Where do you have a break? Um, but talking to the participants, finding out what their needs are, and then you're going to have a better chance of meeting what they need. Mm. Yeah. Clear, clear communication, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Outline exactly what it is that you're expecting of them yeah. and let them make that choice as to whether they can do it or not. Mm. And on one day they might be able to, and on another day they might not. It's yeah. you know, a variable condition. Um, so it is just having that flexibility yeah. as well, I, w- I would recommend. But although people can get very tired, I think the other big thing is, and from my experience and... What I remember with mum is the power of being involved and feeling you're doing something mm. and that you're making a difference and that you're actually still quite important to people. Mm. I can imagine, you know, okay, you might be absolutely shattered at the end of the day, but you've probably got a feeling of, I've done something really good here. Yeah. So and not to worry about the tiredness in a way. Because you can wrap yourself all up in worrying about people too much and then yeah. actually you're not even listening to them in the end. You're yeah. 
saying, oh, it's too much for you, you know, don't yeah. worry about it. So thinking about the balance, yeah. so there's the, the, the physical risk of if you get someone too tired, but think mm. about the emotional risk. Of not listening. If not listening to them, yeah. of not giving them that empowerment. Mm. Um, and just the legacy for the family is knowing that their loved one's done mm. something so powerful and is maybe mentioned somewhere. Mm. Yeah. You know, wow. <laughs> Oh, um, okay. And then finally, Alice Griffiths has asked an issue that they came across recently was what are the responsibilities of researchers where there are concerns about the well-being of individuals after the project has ended? Um, Kirsten, thank you. Um, so, I guess we'd approach it a similar way that we'd approach sort of our responsibility to research participants, being very clear up front about what the expectations are, as we've been talking about, in terms of making sure people are understanding what they're getting involved in, what the um, responsibilities are, what they'll be talking about, what they're expected to do. So then there's kind of an expectation as to um, how upsetting or how much, whether they can cope with that that sort of um, involvement. Also making sure it's just a friendly environment. And I think we're setting, setting up rules of engagement is a bit, sounds a bit formal as we said, but it, it is kind of about the behaviour we expect, not just of, um, of the researchers to the, the PPI, or the, the, the carers or the, the people with dementia that we're dealing, but amongst each other, that we're all respectful and give each other time. And as you said, sort of waiting for people and just, just being respectful and having a friendly environment should mean that people come out of this <laughs> unscathed. But... Um, <laughs> I guess so expectations and, and having that um, friendly environment but but just sort of if they do feel distressed I think it's keeping mindful I mean when I've done focus groups we've usually had a separate room aside and made sure we've got a separate person that so if someone does get particularly distressed during a focus group or a discussion or a, or a meeting that we can take that person aside and, and give them space and just have a coffee or someone can go and chat with them and we can sort of break it up so that's not if they're in a big meeting or something that, that we can um, take them out of that setting or we just sort of pin highlight resources that they might want to go to afterwards if it's sort of the study's finishing and it's more about connecting them to available sort of resources or bereavement sort of supports or um, information services or whatever in, um, whatever might be causing them distress that we can link them in um, to. Okay. Um, now that the sort of the movement is from proving that PPI is valuable to improving the experience to ensure that it's valuable and not tokenistic. Do you have any final words on the next steps for Alzheimer's Society? Yeah, so I touched on it before, that we're really looking at um, the roles that we have available for our, um, our network members and really trying to make sure that we're as accessible as possible. So if someone's um, wanting to work from home uh, as a volunteer, that there are ways that they can get involved. Um, so that's one side of things. The other is really sharing the um, impact of patient public involvement that um, Alzheimer's Society pioneered back in 1999 and it's all the way through to today um, and, and, and the steps we're making. So recently we co-edited the International Journal of Social Research and Practice and there'll be a... Um, 
a link to that. It's uh, open access <laughs> on, on the website. And that's full of fantastic articles by researchers who've engaged in patient public involvement, their experience of that, as well as volunteers. So, so that's um, both sides, the impact for both sides. Both sides, yeah. indeed, yeah. And we have a... Um, we uh, published an impact report earlier this year as well, which we're talking about at various uh, international congresses and things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's two sides. It's improving the opportunities that we're making available for people who are getting involved in the network. We're working with researchers to make sure that they're doing the same and they're not doing it just as a tick box but as, as something that is really valuable to them and is going to improve their research and we're communicating about it as much as possible so people who perhaps haven't, haven't even thought about doing it yet can see the impact of that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. I, um, As I said earlier, I come from a basic biology background so this has been really informative for me um, so it's now time to end today's podcast I'd like to thank Anna, Jane and Kirsten and you can visit our website to look at their profiles and also the links to the uh, journal and the how you can find people to be involved in your research and if you have anything you'd like to add on this topic please uh, post questions in our comments section and uh, finally remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes, thank you Thanks. <laughs> this was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.